uh, just so happy to be here with you guys, and uh, welcome, welcome to you guys online as well. So glad that you could uh, join with us this evening. Uh, get your Bibles out, get your tablet out, your phone out, whatever you use for the Word of God, and go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And I'm just so excited to share uh, the Word of God with you tonight uh, for so many different reasons. Um, it, I'm just you know, elated to share the word with you tonight. And uh, we're going to build on some things. Um, if you were here two weeks ago, we're going to build on some things that Pastor uh, Brian uh, talked about. And then also we're going to build on a couple things that the other Pastor Dave talked about last week. So we're going to hear uh, some similarities, but you're also going to hear uh, some addition to those things. And so how many of you in here tonight... Um, maybe have seen a, a, a trailer to something. So maybe there was a concert or a movie uh, or some maybe conference or something like that that uh, you got to see like the, the trailer for, and it just made you so excited for what was to come. You were just so excited maybe for that movie or, or for that concert, you know, maybe... Uh, you know, like we had City Fest just a while ago. You know, you saw that trailer. You know, we are your people and meet us here. And it's like, yes, yes, yes. You know, I, I, I want to be there. I want to be a part of that. Well, tonight we're going to get to experience a trailer. And it's going to reveal something more fully. And so as we've been learning in Deuteronomy, it is a copy or a retelling of the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and it's kind of a re-explaining of it, and sometimes in more detail. And right now, we're halfway through the book, and tonight, we are going to meet, reach the climax of the book. We're going to kind of be, we're going to hit the pinnacle tonight. And it's going to be just uh, really exciting as we do so. So in the book, we've, we're going to see this um, development uh, of the covenantal relationship between God and man. And, and in Deuteronomy in general, Moses is encouraging the people in three ways. To remain faithful to the covenant. To remind them of their history with God. Do we ever need to do that? Is that important for us? And he also wanted to point them to their future blessings or cursings, depending on their response. So in some ways, you can think of Deuteronomy as a, as a, as a pep talk, if you will. So, so maybe think of like, uh, like in a sports game where they would be in the locker room and the coach is going, remember your training. We practice this. Um, you know, you've worked out for this. You know, all these things, it's, it's a reminder. It's a culminating of those things as, as, as uh, Moses is uh, speaking to the people. And our chapters tonight are going to be 18, which you should be there already, 19 and 20. And uh, just know that we will be skipping around um, in those chapters. Obviously, we won't be covering them in entirety, but we'll be kind of uh, skimming along uh, in certain areas. So the title for tonight's message is A Call to Holiness. A Call to Holiness. And um, as we go through tonight, I want you to keep this in mind. It'll be up on the screen for you. God wants his people, 
to live lives that are set apart. And you'll see behind that LSA. And just know that anytime you see that, our points will stem from that. LSA means live set apart. And when we look around our world right now and the craziness that is going on, does our world need believers who are set apart for God? Our world needs that more than ever right now. And it's important for us to remember that. So we'll develop this as the, uh, through tonight. Uh, but for now, know that being holy, or, or as another way of saying set apart, implies a, a sacredness. Um, it is a being consecrated or set apart to God. Uh, to be holy is to be free from anything that offends God in any way. Now, obviously, we can't do that perfect this side of heaven. We can't do that while we're here on this earth. You know, that's the whole process of sanctification as we grow in the Lord. But it is something that we are striving for, to be set apart to God. So let's read Deuteronomy 18. Um, And as we do, what is being addressed here, uh, again, this is to the priest and to the Levitical tribe. And, and there's some nuances uh, between what's for priest and what's um, for, for the tribe, but we're not going to get that um, nitty-gritty here tonight. And, and so everything that we're discussing here tonight, remember, this is in preparation for the promised land. They haven't entered yet, so what we're, what we're talking about is getting ready to go in. So verse 2, they shall have no, this is to the priest, they shall, uh, to the Levitical tribe, they shall have no inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So you may think, man, that's, that's, kind, that's kind of rough. Um, but again, it's not that they couldn't have inheritance at all. Rather, it means that when it came to having tribal land, so, for instance, like the tribe of Dan or the tribe of Benjamin, they had an area or a territory that was theirs, but not for the, little, not for the Levitical tribe, not, not for uh, the priests. Why? Why is that? It says it there in the verse. It's because here we already see a call to holiness. God wanted the priests and the, and the Levites tribe to be set apart. He wants their faith, their trust, and their dependence to be completely on God. So you may think, well, okay, well, that's great. Uh, I'm not a priest, and as far as I know, I'm not a Levite. But it still has meaning to us today. So look up on the screen. We have uh, a couple verses from 1 Peter. And the first one is uh, 1 Peter 2, 9. And it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal what? Priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In our next verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. It says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, 
Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. See, interestingly enough here, when Peter is, is, is speaking and addressing here in 1 Peter, uh, that, that be holy because I am holy, he is quoting Leviticus 11.44, which is also written by Moses. And obviously Deuteronomy is also written by Moses. So we see even that connection in the New Testament to the Old Testament to this concept of being holy. So even though Moses here is addressing the Levitical tribe, it is just as relevant for us today. So from this verse, we look back and it says, as obedient children. So we can see that there's obedience that is also a part of being holy or holiness or being set apart. But obedience is not the total sum of what holiness is. The scriptures say, if you love me, keep my commandments. What was first? Keep my commandments or love me? Right? So we see an order. We see a progression. You see, when our aim is to glorify God, to, to, to love him, to please him, to honor him, to be more like him, to love others, then obedience, when that's our desire, obedience will come along. It will flow from that. So in other words, it's not our acts that make us holy, but when we glorify God and live set-apart lives, our acts and our obedience will naturally come along with it. But... Obviously, if we're not being obedient, if we know we're doing things that we shouldn't be doing and partaking of things that we shouldn't, then there's no way we are living a God-glorifying life. What are some motives to think of when we think about obedience? I'm going to give us uh, some tonight. Um, A desire to please and express our love to God. It also enables us to have a clear conscience before God. Have you ever just felt that where you know, it's like, man, God, I am not doing right, and I know you're watching me right now? You, you, you know you, when you just feel that? See, but when we're being obedient, our conscience is clear from that. We get to become an honorable vessel with increased effectiveness for the ministry. We get to through uh, having um, this proper motives, we have a desire to, for others to come to Christ by our example. It releases blessings from God in our lives and in our ministry. It pleases God when we're obedient. And it, as a result, it keeps us from needing discipline. Obedience 
uh, gives us greater rewards in heaven, a deeper walk with him, a desire for peace. It, 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 it should also stem from his commands are just right. And lastly, a great motive for obedience is the angels above glorify God when you and I are obedient. Isn't that amazing when we think about that? That angels in heaven dance over you and I. That's just mind-boggling when we think about it. So if we were to go on and read uh, in verse 4, we'll read there in just a moment, but verse 3, it talks about um, going into the land and what is expected for the people, all the people, the whole nation of Israel, uh, to do with the priest. And so that's set up in verse 3, and then in verse 4, we get instructions for the people. It says, you are to give them the first fruits of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the first wool from the shearing of your sheep. And see here, this is much of what living a holy, set-apart life is all about. It is a lifestyle. It's a practice. It's, It's a way of living for God. And we are to, and we'll have it on the screen for you, live set apart. Give God our bests, our first fruits with everything. With everything. Not our leftovers, but our best, our first fruits. We are to give our first fruits, our best, in our possessions. Why? They're His. With our time, why? He made it. With our talents, why? He gave them to us. With our job, because we really are working for him, right? Corinthians 10, 31, I believe, talks about everything we do is for the glory of God. Colossians 3, 23, everything's for the glory of God. I just want to pause here for a moment. And I don't know why. I just feel prompted to share and say, God had this on my heart. I don't know who this is for, but if you're in a job that's contrary to the word of God, find other means. If you know you are somewhere that is not honoring and pleasing and is contrary to the word, trust him to give you other means. And lastly, we are to give him all of us, you, you and I. He's to have all of us. Romans 12, 1, it says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Know this, it is the desire of every pastor here that you live a holy and acceptable life, pleasing to our God, Father, that when you arrive in heaven, you will hear those words, well done. That is our desire for every single one of you today. Same for you watching online. So as we move on now, we transition from these dealings with uh, the priest uh, and the Levitical tribe and, and those kind of laws that were set up there. And now we're going to trans, uh, transition to these wrong, evil practices. 
So in some ways you can think of as we're transitioning now to darkness. And so we pick up in verse 9. It says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nation there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these things, uh, these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. See, God wants the Israelites to have nothing to do with the inhabitants of the land. And we'll see this more as we uh, get into chapter 20. Because they are a wicked people who practice wicked things. And so it's a good time to pause and reflect and take stock of our life and consider, do I have wicked people around me? Do I have people that I know that are just doing wrong in my life and I keep them too close to me? I let them have too much influence? No one's talking about associating with them and ministering to them. I'm saying where they have that influence in your life. Do we have those people that we know are just influencing us in the wrong way? Are there maybe evil practices that, that, that are around me in my life, that, that keep me around. You know, obviously we talked in this passage, it spoke about sorcery and divination and spiritists and spells and, and all these other things. And, well, okay, well, maybe I don't have that. I don't have that in my life. But I just want you to take stock. Think about it. Are there movies? Are there shows that we partake in that have nothing but filled with that? the dead and, and, and demons. and are, are, are we watching those things or are we being set apart? Do we participate in things that are you know, haunted-themed or, or, or horror-themed? Are, are we participating in those? I would suggest cut those things out of your life. I, I can just share even from my own life. Years ago, I used to love that stuff. It's you know, kind of like exciting, whatever. Man, when I became a Christ follower and I just grew and I grew and I grew in him, there was no time for that. There's no time for that mess. There is nothing good, nothing good that can come from it. Any enjoyment is riddled with danger and it's playing with fire. So looking back at verse 13, it says, you must remain blameless. And, and, and the reason for that is because he's saying you're to, you're to be set apart. You're to be holy. Because I want you to hear my voice and my voice alone. He wants us, you and I, to be dependent on him. 
And so this sets up the next uh, topic to be discussed. And now we go from this darkness of divination and all those other things, and we go to the wonderful light. In verse 15, you have it there on the screen for us tonight. It says, the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And my friends, there you have it. There is the climax of the book of Deuteronomy. And it just so happens to also give way to our trailer for what's to come. Well, why is that? It's because here we see a prophecy. Last week we heard this word of foreshadowing. Here we see a prophecy of Jesus. Basically, we're seeing Christ in the Old Testament. So let's see a little bit more about what this pinnacle, what this climax is telling us. So we're going to read verses 17 through 20. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. And I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a little p prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. So here we see the trailer of old to new, a lower P prophet to a big P prophet. So, so let's talk this through. Let's, let's look at some progressions and see how this is relevant to us today. The Bible is God's progressive revelation to man. It is God's story handed down to man But it is about God. And it explains what happens from uh, beginning to end. And as God tells this story, um, there are plot lines, obviously. There's a setting, which is creation. There's a conflict, which is, you know, the fall, when sin entered the world. There was a plan, which was the rescue plan. There was a climax in Jesus Christ which came to a resolution founded on the cross and us being redeemed for our sins and lastly ending with restoration where all comes back as it should be. And while these things are happening, there's uh, covenants involved. uh, There's these types that are involved, the typology, and we'll talk more of that in just a moment, which are basically symbols and representations and, and there's these things that are progressively going along, along the horizons of Scripture. And we see this trailer because Moses is considered an Old Testament type of Jesus. He is a foreshadow. He's, he's, he's the trailer to 
Jesus. See, Moses was a prophet. He was a judge. He was a mediator. So was Jesus. Moses came and freed the people from a physical bondage. And, and, and right now where we're at is we see him currently taking them to the promised land. But he know, we know that he does that. And Jesus came to free his people from a spiritual bondage from sin. And he is bringing us to the spiritual promised land of heaven. Hallelujah to our Father. And last, last week, we even heard uh, the other Pastor Dave talk about uh, um, the Passover and how that was a foreshadow. And we look at the blood of the Lamb and how that allowed the death angel to pass over and what the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, means for us. Now, Moses is doing this under a covenant. And in general, covenants, is, uh, they state an author, they state a brief history, uh, and then they state the conditions of the covenant. And there are two types of covenants. There's conditional and there's grace covenants. And grace covenants means that there are no conditions set forth by the guarantor that the recipient party has to he- adhere to. But conditional covenants obviously means that there are conditions that have to be abided by. And there are potentially uh, consequences as well. And these uh, covenants progress throughout scriptures. And they're issued to multiple people. And some of them are grace and some of them... Um, are conditional. And the Mosaic Covenant is predicated conditionally. It is on obedience and following what was established in the covenant. Jesus, however, when he came, he fulfilled the Old Testament covenant and instituted a new covenant. That's why when we celebrate a communion, it says this cup is the new covenant of my blood. But rather than being a conditional covenant, this is a covenant of grace. Why? Because Jesus took the conditions on himself. Jesus did all the work. And he said, it is, say it with me, finished. Amen. To our God. My friends, if you hear nothing else from me tonight, just as Moses is a trailer to Jesus, we can live set apart. And when we do, our lives become trailers to Jesus as well. We can do that today, currently. And for you guys online, I want you to comment right now. I'm a trailer for Jesus. What can possibly be more God-glorifying than that? To be a representation to God. That we can have what the world wants in such a way that it can exude from us. That they want to see it more fully in him. So maybe you find yourself trying through obedience to find your way to Jesus or to heaven or, or, or however. And today, just know you can let that go. Your obedience will never get you there. 
Actually, you may actually be more frustrated. Obedience is the response. And later tonight, you'll have an opportunity to do that in the way God intended. Now, now we switch from that. We do a big shifting of gears and we transition uh, from speaking about um, uh, uh, holiness with, with the tribes and, and this uh, trailer to Jesus, this, this foreshadow of the prophet that is to come. And, and we transition now into chapter 19, which is speaking about societal issues. So, so things that are uh, in the society. And in chapter 19, we see an establishment of these things called refugee, or, or I'm sorry, refuge cities. And uh, how they were to be used in cases of an of a accidental homicide. Now, when we hear refuge city, that is not the same thing that we hear or we, maybe we think of uh, today. These, this is uh, completely different. So, again, remember that as we're talking about these things, this is to be established. There was these rules and these guidelines that as the Israelites were to come from the east, cross over the Jordan, and go into the promised land, uh, there's these instructions on, on how to set up these uh, refuge cities. So in verses 2, and I'll read uh, 2 and 3. Then set aside for yourself three cities and the land the Lord your God is given you to possess. Determine the distances involved and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance so that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge to one of these cities. And so up on the screen, I have a map for you guys to look at. And you see up there, You'll see three uh, uh, red squares on the right and three red squares on the left. And so they have not entered uh, the land yet. And so the instructions that he's giving are those three, uh, the three ones that are on the left uh, of, the, of the river that's going down the middle. So you kind of see one almost kind of down by uh, Judah there, by West uh, Manasseh, and then up there in Naphtali, you'll see the other refuge city, just so you have a reference. And uh, you know, take note of where those cities um, are at, how they're spaced out. See, the literal meaning uh, of this in the Hebrew is a city of intaking. And these refuge cities were established for those who unintentionally uh, committed murder, or maybe we would think of it as manslaughter. And in the, in the following verses, uh, uh, 4 through 7, it speaks about a person who's cutting down a tree um, with their neighbor. And if, the, you know, the axe slips and, and kills the neighbor, this person who, you know, who, was, who let the slip axe, the axe slip, they got to flee. And they, and they went to a refuge city. Now, this was to be a safe place for those who, to flee. Uh, again, for those who accidentally killed someone. And... Um, that is why there was careful instruction to spread these cities out uh, throughout the land so that they can flee and they could get to them quickly. Now, this was not to negate punishment. This was a so the process could actually uh, play out and guilt or, or innocence uh, could be determined. And what this did is it transformed what previously would have been a feud that would have lasted for generations until a family died off. It allowed it to go from that 
into a judicial matter that could be reviewed by the elders. And the person was allowed to remain in that city of refuge uh, and, and, and until the determination of what the uh, intent was, if there was any. But if the death was determined not to be an accident, the person was turned over for punishment. But I know maybe what some of us in here could be thinking tonight, well, doesn't that mean even the person who did it by accident, aren't they kind of getting off free and clear? Not, not really. That's not really the case. Um, if the person, if it was determined and it goes through and it was determined to be an accident, the person was confined to that uh, refuge city. And many times they were confined to a certain area within uh, that city. They couldn't travel. They couldn't go anywhere. They were in uh, confinement. And the only time that they could be released was when the high priest died. And when that happened, they were able to then travel or maybe go back to their homeland or hometown or whatever the case uh, may be. So now that we kind of we spoke about, uh, you know, this this uh, refuge city and, and what they were intended for. Now it kind of goes to just court proceedings in general. And in verse 15, it says, uh, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. See, in those days, there was little in the way of evidence, um, obviously. So the proof required required multiple witnesses. See, and today, we can uh, kind of consider this as evidence is a witness. So like a fingerprint is also a witness. So even though we may think like, okay, well, maybe there's only one witness to something. Today, we have multiple evidences to support something. But in those days, they didn't have that. So the requirement was two or three witnesses. And this was to avoid any sort of a retaliatory thing. Um, I don't like you, so I just wanted you to get in trouble or to keep it from being like this uh, he said, she said type of thing. There, so to keep from that, there was this requirement for two or three witnesses. And then as if we were to read on, then there's also a stipulation for false witnesses. And, and obviously it forbid someone to be a false witness. And in verse 19, it actually talks about what would happen to um, a false witness. And that person, if it was determined that, uh, that someone was giving a false witness, that person actually received the punishment of what the accusation of the other person was. Pretty powerful motive, right? We're accusing someone of, I don't know, robbery per se. You know, I don't want, I don't want that penalty for that. So there was just an establishment of false witness. It was wrong. And what would happen um, if a false witness was discovered? And then I think so appropriately, we see as we're talking about these societal issues and we're talking about court, we're talking about murder, we're talking about court proceedings and witnesses, we get to this interesting nugget of a verse and it's probably one of, uh, one of the most highly quoted verses that we hear from Christians 
and non-Christians. And we find it in verse 21, and we have it for you in the NLT, which says, You must show no pity for the guilty. Your rule should be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. How many of us have heard this quoted in here? Right? All of us, I'm sure, have heard this quoted at some point. And when you hear that being said, what is usually the demeanor of the person saying it? Are they, are they calm? You know, are they? No. They're usually angry about something. Usually not in control. Well, let me clarify something right up front. Obviously, it doesn't literally mean to take an eye. Okay? The other thing it does not mean is that we are to exact justice for ourselves. For instance, you punch me and I punch you. Or you yell at me, so I yell at you. It's calling for something else. The principle or the law, if you will, is called lex talionis. Say that with me, lex talionis. Good, good. It means law of the tooth or law of retaliation. And in many ancient cultures, they allowed the punishments to be greatly disproportionate to the offense. See, but this law, this law, Lex Talionis law, called for judgment to correspond with the injury. And what it is saying, it's no more than an eye for an eye. Or maybe simply put, compensation should match the damages inflicted. No more and no less. Now, as Moses is giving these instructions, he's giving these instructions to the elders and to the judges. So again, we see that this is not an excuse for personal revenge, but it's calling for a proper process, a level-headed process. Do we see this being attacked in our world today? We are seeing that erode away around us. We are seeing people and and companies and and entities not receiving due process. It's, It's trial by media, trial by these other things. It's immediate removal or chastisement. And that is the exact opposite of what eye for an eye calls for. And that's why we that live set apart are to be reasonable. Maybe another way to put it is to be temperate, to to be level-headed, to be level-headed. We should not be adding fuel to fire on things. We're to be level-headed, temperate, reasonable, 
Esteeming others above ourselves. Looking to the other situation. Those are the things we need to be thinking. So, we know that we've, we've, we've shown and we've proven that it's not, it's not a call for a vendetta or retaliation on our own part. Um, because, obviously, that, that would be incorrect. It's not what eye for an eye is about. But maybe what's a situation that we could look at today? <clears throat> Let's say that you're in a vehicle crash. And who likes those, right? Kind of ruins your day, not really exciting, all that kind of good stuff. But it's not your fault. You had, you know, damages. And, uh, you know, maybe it's just only on one side of the car. And, and you go and you seek reparations uh, for those damages. But if you're seeking to get higher than what's needed, or maybe there's damage on the other side of your car and you're kind of hoping that you can finagle to get them to fix the other side while really only the damage was on this side, or if your mentality is, man, I'm just going to get this for all I can get it for. No. That's not what eye for an eye calls for. It calls for us to be reasonable to be level-headed, to be fair-minded, to be long-suffering. That is what eye for an eye is about. Amen? So as we transition into chapter 20, uh, we now transition from societal issues to warfare. And so we'll see here in, uh, in verse war, uh, first one, excuse me, as the Israelites, you know, again, they're talking about entering the land. And before, when they had done this, they had sent spies and they saw, it. man, that's a mighty country, big people, fortified everything. And that's what caused them to go in the wilderness for another 40 years. And now they're coming back. And so that is the mindset when we hear verse 1, which says, When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, will be with you. This is a powerful verse, and it applies to us still today. Just as we looked at Moses being a trailer, if you will, to uh, Jesus, we see that he was a type of Jesus. We can see that this verse, um, you know, when Moses was the physical, where Jesus was the spiritual, we see this in this verse. They're talking about a physical battle, but spiritually in the new covenant, this idea of this verse stands today. As Christ followers, we experience spiritual warfare all the time. Our enemy may have horses, may have great power. They may have all the odds against us. But that doesn't matter when it comes to our God. The same God who rescued us from our miry pit is the same God who's with us in the battle. Therefore, we can stand and we can have courage instead of fear. And if we were to read on in the chapter, um, there's instructions of, of, you know, basically the rules of engagement. 
Um, there was instructions on what to do if they were east of the Jordan River, uh, different instructions if they're on the west of the Jordan River, um, you know, women and children, uh, just all these different uh, rules of engagement. And then we get to verse 16. And here um, we are speaking about what God intends uh, for the, the current inhabitants of the promised land who the Israelites were evicting. This, this, God is speaking in uh, to that as they go in to take the land. So verse 16. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. As the Lord your God has commanded you. You see, God is telling the Israelites to eradicate those who live in the land. And I know that may sound harsh, but we remembered earlier, they are a wicked people who practiced wicked things. And God is saying, don't take their livestock. Don't take them as servants. Don't have anything to do with them. Why? Well, verse 18, and we can all read it together. You see it up on the screen with us. Verse 18 says, Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. That is, my friends, what we never want to happen in our life. And that is why we are to live set apart. Never take sin prisoner. Eradicate it. Get rid of it. Don't take it prisoner and allow it to build up a revolt in the prison and come back for you. See, God knew the remnants in that, the, the people in that land would influence the Israelites to stray from God. And he did not want that to happen. Straying from God would cause them not to be a set-apart nation. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, then you know the Israelites didn't listen. And, and they didn't do that. And later on, that's exactly what happened. They strayed. So let me encourage you tonight to never, never flirt with sin. Never do it. Don't, don't allow it. Don't like, you know, maybe keep it as arm's length. And, oh, you know, just... No, don't do it. Don't, don't flirt with it. Don't take it with it in your home. Don't justify it. Stay away. Identify your areas of struggle and seek to destroy them. Eradicate them in your life. Not that we're perfect again. We've already talked about that. But unlike the Israelites had there in the Old Testament, you and I have a helper. We have the Holy Spirit to help us. 
You never have to do battle alone. Amen? So, as we close, I want, I want us to do two things tonight. And I just want you to bow your heads. And if you're in here tonight, and, and you're a believer, and you've given your faith and your hope and your trust in God because he died on the cross for your sins, if you're a believer... And you're here, and the Holy Spirit has just been speaking to you, saying, man, I'm willing to help you to live a set-apart life. You, you can't really say right now, man, I, I haven't really been set apart from God. I look a lot more like the world than I do God. If that's you tonight, and you want to live set-apart for God, Pray along with me. Repeat after me as we pray. And if you want, lift your hands. Give it to God right now. If that's you and you feel that in your life and you want to give it to him, lift your hand to God and pray after me. Father God, thank you for who you are. I want to live fully for you. Will you please help me eradicate the sin in my life? Lord, help me to love you, to honor you, glorify you. And God, may obedience flow out of my love for you. God, I want to be purified. Lord, I want to have a clean conscience before you. Help me be set apart for you the rest of my days. In Jesus' name. 